dependent on a whole bunch of factors, what the Russians can bring to bear and what the Ukrainians um, provide in terms of counter-battery fire is really what's going to dictate that um, situation. But definitely listen in, uh, watch the space, watch, watch, watch wherever you feel comfortable watching. You will see um, a tide change. I don't think it'll be a sea change. I think it'll be a petering out. Um, eventually, uh, I think they fired the head of uh, Russian artillery school or artillery sciences, whatever that's supposed to mean. Um, not sure why. I mean, they've been doing the job the Russians have told them to do. Just not sure how long they can provide. Uh, the Russians probably, if they've replaced that head, they must have uh, really thought that they'd get further in a lot of places and not just in Sverdonetsk region or in that part of that oblast. Um, so it doesn't look like we're going to uh, see any major changes um, in territory at the moment from the Russians. But I do want to point out that although parts of the Donbass were lost, more, more territory technically if you were to measure in square kilometers was get regained by Ukrainian forces in the Kherson region and Kharkiv areas. So it could very well be part of the, um, the, the, the new, uh, uh, the, the made redund- the redundancies created in the Russian general staff. Um, and that's great. That's awesome. I mean, uh, I'm not trying to be overly optimistic again. I think it's just important to uh, pay attention to what's going on the ground. Russia has an expectation where they should be well above where they are, right? With all the fires they're putting down, all the Ukrainian lives sacrificed to defend their country, you would think that that the Russians would have a lot more to show for it, um, regardless of those Gherkin telegram comments. Uh, Still, it's a very small piece of land for the amount of troops lost. We're talking about brigade-plus strength. We're talking about 200 tanks just in a two, three-week period. Um, they've lost in two, three weeks more tanks than most countries have by double. Um, so it's, it's incredible the losses they've been endured uh, and to what end to, to obtain a rubbled city. Um, certainly not sustainable. I did ask, we did ask a couple of military experts, Major Giroux. He, he, the numbers were so crazy, he, didn't, he couldn't even believe they were true, right? I'm not saying he didn't believe it because it's, it's a strange, 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 strange. So. Uh, the question asked to some of the other military experts was, uh, is this sustainable? I mean, the question is how long Russians are going to provide, you know, cannon fodder if they keep mobilizing people quietly and bringing them to the front. Is the artillery there to support them? Give, give the HIMARS a month and a half, two months, to uh, destroy Russian artillery, and then we'll see uh, We'll see where what happens at that point. Go ahead, uh, John. Uh, thank you, Huda. Um, I was looking over, just as a, as a potential point of discussion here, I was looking over this interesting announcement from, I believe it's uh, Ukrainian Deputy Defense Minister, um, regarding some potential Russian offensive actions, uh, potentially in the coming days in uh, Zaporizhia. And this is the first I've heard about um, in, any kind of offensive capability there. I believe uh, a grouping of approximately five uh, Russian BTGs of unclear strength uh, was referenced, um, and this is uh, citing data collected by uh, the HUR Ukrainian military intelligence. Um, right now, I'm looking at uh, the the southern front line and uh, firms trying to get an idea of the uh, what. Th- there seems to have been definitely an uptick in Russian shelling across the whole line. I mean, right now, I'm just trying to get a sense of you know how much of an uptick has there been along the southern front specifically compared to, you know, the past few days and weeks. 
I would say it's not evenly distributed, but it's pretty evenly distributed with, um, with, with I would say, largely heavier fires, uh, more saturation on the, um, in the mid. If you look at a map and you were to draw a line of, uh, a line from the north to the south in the Donbass area, you're seeing uh, more strikes. But still, it's actually surprisingly quite um, solid, the, the uh, offensive throughout it. So it's, it would be a hardy thrust, uh, or it should it should materialize, but it hasn't. So, so that just speaks to um, Ukrainian defiance, uh, their strength, um, and their ability to uh, to uh, retain their own ground and obviously make the Russians fight for every inch of Ukraine. Um, again, you got to remember, for every bit of land you, Ukrainians lose to the Russians, that is more territory for the Russians to defend with. Um, even even if it's not dwindling numbers, um, they're they're not they're not getting substantial reinforcements. So um, they're 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 extending themselves and extending themselves, as we've seen with their logistics supply and their ammo dumps in one day. Four massive ammo storage facilities or designated storage areas have been destroyed. Um, that's huge. That's huge. So the must they obviously have. I would speculate 50 to 100, if not more, per, per, per battle space, per area of operation. So um, let, let, let those very funky, cool uh, American satellites and other people's satellites um, go hunting and looking for things and, and pass it off to Ukrainian gunners who type in the coordinates and off she goes. Boom. Um, again, that's, that's, when you, that's when you really are going to see it. Um, but it has been an interesting day today. It looks like the Russians really are trying to demonstrate that they're not a spent force and just to what end, you know. Uh, we know that the Russians use artillery as their main effort and then and then maneuver warfare, maneuver forces are meant to uh, support the artillery uh, as opposed to our doctrine, which is the other way around. Artillery supports maneuver warfare. So if they've done all of this stuff and all of this mass fire, all of these mass fires along the entire frontage of uh, in Ukraine. What to what to what end is it? What are they? What, where's where's the infantry following up? Where what are they doing? Uh, you know, is it a show of force for sure? Is it deadly? Obviously, but um, the game for now, and we kind of spoke about this earlier. The, the game here, the play is trade space for time, and uh, the, if you're not seeing massive runs, Massive Russian uh, advances into Ukraine, um, kind of the whole point of a war, right? It's the whole point of that. They're trying to seize territory, and they're not seizing much. 500, 1,000 meters a day uh, in some areas. In other areas, they're losing 5, 10 kilometers. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very strange scenario. From a military perspective, um, you know, you're going to have to poop or get off the pot. So you're going to provide all these mass fires. What are you going to do with that? You have to capitalize. You have to exploit it. So if all the Ukrainians are, are, have gone to ground and they're, they're, they're hunkering down for all these onslaughts, you expect the Russians to follow up with troops. I, I suspect that they just don't have the troops uh, at this point. These BTGs are bone thin. Go ahead and dry fly. Hi. I was just going to ask you, uh, Yehuda, while you're, you're on that, do you see there are going to be any offensives in surprise areas? You mentioned the Zaporizhia, and I've been kind of watching that for some time. I've been expecting something uh, out of that area. I was almost wondering 
whether Ukraine is going to be the one that's pushing that area. Um, but everyone talks about, you know, the, uh, the eventual efforts down in Kherson, uh, or maybe up in the north coming from uh, Kharkiv down toward Iz- Izium. Um, do you see any surprises that may catch the Russian kind of napping somewhere? And I'll listen. So yeah, it's a good question. Is there a magic, uh, you know, uh, formula? There's no, it, it really, it all depends. It's all, it's all dependent on the situation on the ground. So what that means is uh, when, when, and I'm, I'm pretty confident again, um, anything from a staff, uh, like a, anything from a field grade officer and above is trained to, to, to study these type of scenarios. So we've had generals on here talking about it and colonels. The Ukrainians are obviously, will, will, they will conduct counteroffensives when they see fit, right? When they suspect they have uh, the best opportunity. And when that happens, um, you know, there are obviously, obviously plans that they have for different regions in Ukraine. Uh, and they, they have a good idea of what troops they have there, what troops they can bring there, and what effects they can bring as well, uh, for example, with artillery. And they, they will make that decision. Uh, do I want to say one specific area? Well, the answer is I don't know, right? I mean, are there many areas that if I looked at a map, yeah, that looks like a really interesting, you know, uh, place to attack from. Uh, and, and, and the tactical gain or the strategic gain would be to cut off the Russians from here or to cut that supply line or to, uh, to encircle Russian forces. Um, but it all depends on, 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 the, on, on the situation when the Ukrainians are ready. Um, so, you know, would they, you know, you might say, let's cut, let's cut, let's pinch uh, the Russians in the Donbass, um, cut off a large portion of them. Maybe that's not a good idea. Maybe that is a good idea. But you also have to know what the Ukrainians are fighting with. And to this day, we don't really know their strength uh, or their disposition. We don't know what, 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 where they want to put their artillery. Um, they obviously want to, they need to secure and preserve the forces. They need survivability built into that plan. And um, also, obviously, they're, they're, they've demonstrated in the Kherson region that three weeks ago, uh, almost four, when they conducted a pretty serious counteroffensive and were able to push the Russians back to a, a static line uh, and threaten their logistic supply. That, that, I doubt that was just a test. I'm sure they, it, was, it was a meaningful um, counter move, but they didn't exploit it. Uh, possible reasons, they didn't have what they needed to exploit it properly. Uh, will they get there? Probably. Um, so Kherson is, uh, is, I would say, is definitely uh, a very, very um, juicy target just because, you know, the Russians have their back against the sea. Um, the, the Ukrainians are able to provide uh, all sorts of fires from the north and the west. Um, so Kherson would be uh, the most, the weakest part of the, uh, the Russian front at this point. Um, but you know, who knows? They might go full frontal somewhere. You, you, we really don't know. It really depends on what Ukrainian disposition is when they decide to uh, to to, look, to conduct these counteroffensives. Um, and I, I suspect they will be um, not too complex, but they, I wouldn't I wouldn't assume it would be a, a singular front. Um, I, I suspect a minimum of two, uh, and uh, it might just be two. Uh, in order to concentrate their forces and concentrate fires. Um, but yeah, I mean, they could go piecemeal. They could go Harrison first and then over to, um, to uh, uh, the uh, Mariupol region or the Landbridge 
in this area. So hope that answers your question. Yeah, actually it did. Um, and, and I, I didn't expect, you know, Matt, you know, anyone to divulge any secrets or something that would be, you know, upset, um, problematic, but, um, you kind of did answer it. Cause I've just been wondering, looking at it, that, you know, the focus on our, on our media, you know, and I say our, meaning the whole Western media, is that it's all going to be in Kherson. And I just keep thinking, I keep wondering, if if we all know it, then the Russians know it, which makes me think it's going to be somewhere else. And the Russians aren't going to know it. And that's why I asked the question. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. yeah. no, no worries. I mean, the reality is that's that's very much a, a, uh, a, a, a common sense, um, you know, thing to think right just because of the, the geography uh, just and also the ability of the russians to reinforce um they're awfully close so ukrainian lines are really close uh to the northeast and and just if you look at the topography they the advantage is theirs to push south and cut off the russians and, and kherson oblast proper it would not um it's not a it's not a crazy idea uh, and that might be the start of something, or maybe that's where they, the Russians assume they'll go and they'll, they'll conduct a feint where they'll, they'll let the Russians feel they're going there. And maybe the Russians will move forces uh, over uh, from the east and the south over to reinforce uh, that oblast. Um, it's really a, a, the Ukrainians choosing. Um, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll do that. And I think they'll do it quite well. Like, so, so at first... You know, the, the, some people said the Ukrainians have counterattacks. Well, they've actually conducted three pretty major counteroffensives, and and they've all been quite, very successful, actually. And um, why that's important is obviously fighting uh, in a land operations fight. Uh, fighting a defensive is different than obviously an offense, offensive operation, um, and uh, there are different considerations and factors. Uh, and arguably, the offense would be a little more complicated. And uh, in this particular case, the Ukrainians. Uh, demonstrated their ability uh, to conduct combined arms maneuvers against the Russian forces um, to really good effect. Uh, in fact, I'd say the Kherson uh, attack uh, was was really a, like when it comes to tradecraft and professionalism, it was uh, it was really well executed. The battle, the fight north of Kiev was also very good, but it was also a confluence of a lot of factors. And there was, if you, if you go read John Spencer's. Uh, um, uh, tweets and, and his articles about it. It was uh, um, it was quite a complex operation involving a lot of moving parts. Yeah, uh, I read that. That was amazing, and that that people should be pointed to that over and over again because it's maybe one of the best reads I've read in a long oh, yeah. time. Yeah, if someone wants to put it in the nest, go check out uh, uh, John Spencer's articles. He wrote that after Kakak. Uh He visited the friends of uh, Walter Report while in Ukraine, and he got a good. Uh, feel of uh, things and look at the lay of the land there. So, um, you know, uh, we will be sending other people there shortly too to give us some updates. So watch for that. Uh, but an incredible... Um, and, and the other thing, yeah. thing is I, I would be really interested in is you get Chuck uh, Chuck Farr back on again. He he is, has, has a well of... He and I were talking one night late uh, on your on your channel and uh, uh, on your space. And, and we both are captive of the Vietnam War era. I mean, I'm, I'm 65. I wasn't there, obviously, but I had family who were there and uh, had family who were there during Tet, in fact. And we both expect that there's going to be a lot of partisan cooperation with whatever um, eventual uh, uh, 
offensive occurs. And it's very likely the Russians aren't even going to know what hit them because some of it's going to be on the front and some of it's going to be behind the lines, very much like the Viet Cong and the NVA coordinated on Tet. And, and to a great extent, the U.S. and Arvin had no idea what, what hit them. Now, it didn't work out for them uh, because they didn't have the resources and the U.S. just had so much. But it had the the U.S. reeling for gosh, you know, two months, you know, pretty much. It took two months to completely take way back, you know. Um, and when you consider Vietnam was really not the power that the U.S. was, that tells you something. If uh, Ukraine coordinated with partisans behind the line and hit the Russians with both conventional, you know, straight up frontal attack and then also um, partisanship, you know, partisan fighting behind the lines, I mean, it, it could be enormously successful. I mean, it could really surprise us. That's my gut feel, and maybe wrong. No, no. I mean, I mean, look the the amount of partisans behind the lines that are armed well enough now, like in Kherson, is obviously debatable. Um, I'm not saying there's no one because I don't know the answer. But um, obviously, in the beginning of the war, when 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 the Russians were everywhere in Ukraine, it was obviously they were an enormous target. Uh, totally got caught with their pants down. And um, and that's um, you know the, the next battle I would say like for example Kherson would, would be to isolate the city um, and then uh, and then the Russians I, I suspect the Russians would actually surrender uh, if if the Ukrainians made a made a decision to push south and east of Kherson um, there's there's that it's just a very simple uh, the math is simple uh, and the Russians would probably be an offer to passage out. Uh, because there's just nothing for them to do. They 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 would have all their their uh, logistics cut off. They would have their supplies dwindling, um, and so uh, it's a very good starting point. I'm glad you mentioned it because that is that is a common sense answer, and it might be so common sense they might not do it uh, because they might feel that uh, they can draw more Russians into um, a, a, a disadvantageous you know fighting position uh, because going at it in, in Donbass and slogging it could be just as difficult for them. So it's truly a dish choice that Ukrainians have um, not an infinite, but many, many different avenues of approach uh, and, uh, in, 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 in the next in the next fight. They call it phase three of this war, right? So looking forward to it. I'm one, also one other thing you guys said too that I really make yes. fact of um, because you don't see something doesn't mean it's there or that it's not there. And with uh, the way that this, this Special forces of Ukraine have have worked. It would not surprise me one bit that they're laying the groundwork behind the lines, much more so than we'll ever know. I mean, it's their terrain. They know it. They know the country. Um, there are people there that they probably have contacts with that are sympathetic. And it doesn't take a huge army of insurgents to raise enough hell that the Russians can't move troops as freely to the front uh, as they would like. And to a great extent, that was the success of Tet, was the Viet Cong raising hell to such an extent. I mean, they were shooting rockets into Saigon for crying out loud, straight out of the Mekong at the time the the U.S. Army was trying to race north to stop the bleeding yeah. in the highlands, and yeah. and they couldn't do it. And and I could easily see the same kind of a thing uh, occurring in, in Ukraine. It doesn't take a huge number. It just takes it. It just has to be noisy and obvious. Yeah, hundred percent. Thanks for that dry fly. Yep. Well, uh, the room. The room asked, and and I and I delivered. Uh, I I give you Chuck the uh, 
uh, our good friend Chuck, and obviously his sidekick CJ, not as good looking, but he will do. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Two, good two, two good far day. more superior as qualified people than me here. Go ahead, Chuck. And CJ. I don't think so. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I am delighted to be here. Thank you for joining us, Chuck. Uh, Chuck, we're now neighbors. I'm not going to tell anyone, though. That's, that's true. I think, I think I'm closer than you even want me to be. This is a <laughs> problem. I'll, uh, I, uh, I like Diet Coke and water. Yeah. My, we're going to have a barbecue in the back. Yeah, and, perfect. Uh, watching my mother-in-law dig some trench for no reason throughout the backyard. Um, I'm just kidding. Yeah, but CJ Chuck, we were having a big discussion here. Mostly good. We were talking about big picture stuff. Uh, uh, one of the things that came up was uh, um, talking about the increase in, 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 in Russian artillery right, right across the line with a little bit of more saturation in the center and uh, what it could mean and what it doesn't mean. Um, talked about how, how there was surprisingly no major attempted advances, but a whole lot of already, but in a lot of places, it doesn't look like a good use of concentration of force, maybe a show of force, uh, questions on that. And then also someone asked an interesting question. Let's just say Ukrainian army feels it's good to go. Time for counter offensives. Um, where would, where would you go? You know, would it just be Kherson? Cause it's easier against the, the black sea and, uh, cut them off and then choke out, uh, the, the Russians in Kherson city. Uh, what do you guys think? DJ, have at it. I, I'm a naval officer, so I go second. Well, I don't, no, you're always first in my heart, Chuck. Well, I guess, you know, I would say, you know, since the beginning of today, we've seen even more depot strikes and even more uh, fuel and ammunition go up in flames. And we've heard reports that perhaps they're actually finally at their culmination point because not only have they announced a pause, but they've also not made any ground maneuvers uh, and they've just relied on artillery, which is interesting when you consider the fact that they might be running dangerously low. So, what was super interesting to read on Telegram today was uh, Russians in a tizzy, which always makes me very happy. First, on the account of all the strikes, you know, basically a lot of mentions that the Russian uh, government was unhappy with the amount of strike footage that was being posted uncensored. And they said, do what Ukraine does and blur out your videos because partisans and Ukrainian saboteurs are using these videos to redirect fire. And of course, as we all know, Gimler's, uh, they're GPS guided. You do not guide them from the ground you do not correct for them or anything like that so it's quite a silly notion to say the least but to see them you know uh commend the ukrainian government for their operational security was just something i I wouldn't have expected in this war and the second point they pointed out was that some ground commanders were relaying a massive loss of ammunition which is obvious from anyone that pulls up twitter but they were saying that they were running low and especially the rocket ammunition which they don't have in as large of quantities as their uh, tubed artillery so what does this all mean? It means that there are a lot of points that are open. You know, in the last 48 hours, we saw a pretty heavy shelling by Ukrainians all across the Kherson front. And then today, uh, Zaporizhia all the way up to Donetsk. So, you know, in terms of which one to counterattack first, maybe maybe Chuck's got a good idea because it seems like Ukraine is uh, giving equal love to all sectors over the. It seemed like for sure. What do you what's what's your take on that, Chuck? Oh no, Chuck, Chuck? You unmute your mic. Mike, Chuck. While Chuck does that, why don't you all, if you can, go and retweet the space. Let everyone know we're talking to Chuck and CJ. We're going to put you in the same uh, same vein. Um, who are talking to, in fact, Yehuda, which is even, you know, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, just uh, retweet this here, and uh, that'd be great. Chuck's going to figure out what's going on with his 
is Mike. Uh, Chuck, Chuck, it's funny because, um, you know, um, all those memes that came up about Chuck Norris, uh, they're actually about Chuck. Uh, that's the code word, you know. Uh, he's kind of our personal superstar, so we thank him. And what's happened is his mic has probably died. And Chuck looked at it funny, and the mic just broke. But um, Chuck's going to figure that out. Okay. Well, I see, I've got a question for you if nobody else has a cool way Chuck. Does that work? Yeah, sure. Go ahead, language. Yeah, so we've seen that the Russians have been talking more and more about how they really require their Orlan 10 spotting drones um, or other variations to direct their artillery fire. We know they've lost a number of them. We know they have a number more. Can you see that being a rate-limiting factor, even though we know that they have a tremendous amount of tube artillery 150 millimeter stuff we're seeing increasingly sent up there. But if they can't see it, um, would you expect them to be less effective outside of just saturation campaigns? Um, are there ways to, you know, target this rate limiting resource? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. And I, I guess it really hasn't come up before, but the way I would think about it, you know, beforehand, um, you, you, Russia could be pretty uh, open with their artillery usage, both because Ukraine's artillery was so limited and also because they had so many pieces and so much ammo. So, you know, they're, they could do a lot of strikes because they didn't have to matter so much. But now we're in a situation where not only are there 24 U.S. counterfire radars, but there's, you know, U.S. artillery, high Mars, all these things that can basically destroy almost any Russian artillery piece that can uh, reach Ukraine. It's guaranteed that Ukraine can reach them back. So now I think the drone usage is going to be even more important by Russia because the one thing they can do uh, even if they're not going to shoot, is do uh, target dev and kind of figure out where to spend their uh, ever-decreasing ammo and, and, and guns at. And so they will have to be pretty judicious in the coming weeks, even on their pause here, as they say, until they either get more ammo or, uh, you know, unfreak their situation. But you will probably still see a lot of drones going up, a lot of drones getting shot down. But I don't know. Those Orlan 10s, I mean, they literally have a Nikon camera strapped into them. It looks like a potato anytime they try and film anything and submit it as a successful hit, as we all saw, I think, two or three days ago. They said they took out a HIMARS or two, and it obviously was just some barrels on the ground, and they also missed. So, you know, it's kind of hard to say where the, the Russian drone situation is, other than, of course, all over Telegram, where they get donations for even cheaper and worse drones to try and help their guys on the front. So it should be interesting to see if they can pull some more out of storage in the future. Did you have a... I, I'm back, you guys. I'm sorry. I, I'm getting uh, electronic warfare at me. So, yeah, I have an interesting, I have a question for you. Um, you know what? I, I don't think that I have seen a really good Russian use of artillery in a combined arms maneuver kind of situation. Uh, is, they, don't, is, they don't do it. Yeah. is that, I was going to say is that, that that's sort of a fundamental pillar of land warfare for NATO, you know, Art, artillery is the queen of battle and you know you don't want to move your infantry or your armor it, so that isn't happening am i right to think that so sorry, i mean i guess it depends no yeah i was gonna say it depends on uh you know what time frame you're looking at right i would i would argue against that because you know when rabizne and pasta and syrodonetsk and lishishank obviously these were all extremely costly urban campaigns but they would not have been you know quote unquote won by russia without 
the use of the integration of artillery successfully. But if you look at it at scale, right, it's none of these sort of lightning combined arms maneuvers that you were just referring to where artillery right. helps, you know, ground forces close the gap in, a, in an effective way that per, that allows them to fight another day successfully without weeks of uh, recuperation and rebuilding. So I think you're right. To an extent, it hasn't been used effectively, but I would say it still has been used in combined arms maneuver because um, specifically those cities I mentioned, but not in probably the way they want it to, where they're able to take you know, large swaths of lands, because let's face it, right, they don't have an infantry advantage. They have a vehicle advantage that's dwindling by the day. And so if they're not using those vehicles to actually capture large pieces of terrain, then they're right. not really using them effectively. So in that regards, their use of artillery with that it is a, a gigantic failure. So just I just want to jump in there. So, so what's funny when we say combined arms, uh, infantry people, or like people that actually do fighting in the military, CJ. Um, we, I think of infantry and armor, for example. I know Artie is part of it. I'm just making a joke about Artie, everyone. Um, so the the reality is, when it comes to combined arm, in what I would consider a more traditional sense, you know, armored and infantry, and uh, they're, they're you know sure, what? They're I, surprisingly. I, I, I put up a, another sorry. map uh, this morning. Of you there, Chuck? Can you hear me? Or is that my phone? Who? Mike, check. I hear you. Yeah. Okay, check dropped, uh, or his mic went out again. Yeah, so I was saying we just we see a surprisingly, uh, surprisingly poor performance with with those form of combined arms. Now, when it comes to artillery and infantry, you know, CJ's right, uh, they do employ it. I mean, I don't know even if their comms are that good. I think that they 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 do their artillery. There's H hour, and they almost have like separate H hours. I think it's almost like they they operate in a silo, and uh, and just NATO doctrine wise. Um, as we were saying just before you popped on, CJ I was mentioning about the, the, just the huge schism, the difference in um, in doctrine for us and them. Where, as I said, uh, you know, for us, uh, artillery supports exists to support maneuver warfare, and in, in, in Russia, uh, maneuver warfare exists to support the artillery. So it's it's, it's, all, it's actually inverted; it's it's flipped, um, and that's why they have such a huge, huge artillery. Uh, so. Um, yeah, and we just spoke about that. It's funny that you mentioned it, or Chuck mentioned it, because when it comes to you know combined arms, land 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 maneuvers, um, they they're surprisingly weak with integration and combined arms, meaning like armored and infantry. But they obviously do focus heavily on on on, on artillery and infantry, and that's you know that's my that's my blind spot because obviously I don't consider their artillery that important. No, I know I'm just joking. But go ahead, CJ, and then let's try to get Chuck back up. No, I got. I just have a question for Chuck whenever whenever he gets back about. Um some sort of uh, soft operation. So I'll, I'll, I'll hold yeah. off until then. Chuck, Chuck's getting, uh, he often glitches when he first starts talking. He has to join a few times. So um, yeah, let's just wait for Chuck. Chuck, if you can disconnect and come back, that'd be great. Uh, language, did you have a follow-up? Yeah, there's a question for Chuck and CJ. Um, the, you know, I think as we're waiting for Chuck to come back, if Gurney and John... Go for it. No, he's coming up. Go for it. All right, cool. Um, so yeah, for CJ, for Chuck, we've seen in the last, you know, couple days, an increased amount of Ukrainian, uh, essentially DIY, uh, loitering munitions. There had been evidence to suggest that those were responsible for a deep strike on a Russian oil depot in Russia proper. Um, we've seen actual ground footage of them launching. They have a payload of like, you know, two and a half kilograms or something, which is what, like a mortar shell. These, as we start to see this, I want to call it the democratization, but the more indigenous capacity produce these loitering munitions that have greater 
capabilities than say the Switchblade 300s, greater range, et cetera. Do you see that having an effect on the battlefield? Is it more of a novelty? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Go ahead, Chuck. Yeah, uh, well, I, I, I think that, you know, you, you've got two kilograms of explosive. Uh, you know, that itself can do absolutely nothing or it can be configured into a shape charge or a double shape charge and it can do a tremendous amount of damage. So uh, given if I had those capabilities and obviously they're extant on the battlefield, you know, you're looking to hit command and control nodes, uh, a tent with a general in it. Uh, you're looking to hit a, a, a POL, a petroleum and lubricants facility. You know, in that case, they can really, really be important. Um, you know, depending on how articulate your control is, you could hit a taxiing aircraft. And that may be one small little victory, but believe me, it sends a message to that squadron. And, uh, you know, I'm the guy who's been banging the morale drum the whole time. And it is, you know, it, it, it is it is vital to in, to inflect the morale of the enemy. And I can't help but think, especially in the Lashansk, uh, Severodonetsk axis, these guys are tired. They're tired. All right, uh, CJ, did you want to jump in there? If not, we're going to go to Gurney. Yeah, real quick. All I would say is, you know, it's important to understand, like, how much this is overwhelming, uh, you know, Russian air defenses, right? When when Russia, you know, even if the air battle was always, you know, at best a a parody with the Gimlers in flight, with the Ukrainian Air Force making a resurgent, with Tachkas being shot, what it does is it overwhelms the Russian air defense, or at least their, you know, capabilities to track and detect and engage any sort of targets. So now something that may have been considered not wasn't going to have sort of a larger effect on the battlefield now can when Russia has to look a million different ways for, you know, high angle Gimlers coming in. They got to look for low incoming uh, Tachkas. They got to look for more precision rounds from Western artillery. There's now all of these spaces that are opening up literally in the airspace where uh, Ukraine can use, you know, very cheap, um, but with small explosives, as Chuck pointed out, but still um, deadly against certain targets, especially moving targets and things like that. So this is kind of what we'll see moving forward, you know, if support continues to remain as strong, if not stronger. Um, And I really don't expect it to go the other way unless Russia opens up another front or finds more troops or finds new equipment. It's, it's going to be this way, thankfully. And you know, what's interesting is we're, we're talking now about the degradation of, of Russian air defense. When we started this out in, in March with U, Ukraine's air defense almost wiped out. So uh, interesting change in whatever it's been a hundred days. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Gurney, go ahead. Hey Chuck, someone said uh, combat swimmers and you came running. Uh, so I thought I, <laughs> I did. I did. I put that up. I, I was delighted to see that. And if anyone hasn't heard the news, the, uh, apparently the Ukrainian flag is flying over Snake Island once again. And uh, uh, Ukrainians have landed a landing force. It might be a token landing force, but I am delighted to to report that Chuck, did you cut off again yeah i i think you cut off try to come back again if you can check so sorry about that uh i blame cj oh go ahead go ahead gurney maybe cj can answer that yeah so while um while we're waiting for chuck back um he's got a photo of it and, and he's he was about to speak to it there on snake island so cj chuck um my question is 
uh, while while he gets back up here is um, clearly th these images. We we would not have these images. These are highly competent, highly trained individuals. Um, we clearly have these images with with both their blessing and and their command blessing. So my question to Chuck uh, is why why do you think we're seeing this flex now um, in terms of the and even uh, not just the the operation itself with multiple components, but they even included the. Um, the underwater de delivery vehicles in that uh, very specifically. So I was just curious, Chuck, from your perspective, why, why the flex now uh, of showing this sort of multi multi prong element? Chuck, you there? We're so sorry. It's not us, Chuck. I promise you. Gurney, uh, if I may f do a follow up to what you just asked, did you also see what the Russians did in response? And is that actually confirmed at this time regarding Snake Island? So I don't know the sequence, and I don't know if it's been confirmed, but I know that there were reports. Uh, that that said that the Russian response to it was uh, was the aerial strike of the pier. So I, I, I again I can't I don't know the timing I don't know the response uh, I don't know if they were trying to get those guys or if it was sort of a, a token response. But that's that's as much as I had. Yeah, there, there's very little information on it. There was uh, mostly Russians reporting that they uh, had some uh, strikes on the island uh, and not much forthcoming. Um, but I'm sure the Ukrainians expected that anyway. So probably uh, the reason behind their smaller footprint. Hope that helps you, Jake. You know, that sounds gonna, good. But we're going to throw by. Okay, so we had the original questions. I don't know if we can go back to them before got, Chuck got cut off, and that was the uh, artillery, which we noticed that surprisingly not much else was moving or grooving after the uh, large uh, barrage, as I say in French. And um, the second part of that that people were curious, and and I, I did my best to give my assessment was uh, what, what does a counteroffensive look like? It's kind of the paraphrase of the question. Um, Low-hanging fruit around Kherson, a feint around Kherson, and hit, hit him somewhere else. Uh, what would you do if we were playing war games? CJ and then Chuck. Let's try Chuck first because he's the least uh, friendly today. <laughs> it's not too friendly. Well, at the at the uh, I guess you always let the junior guy speak first at the uh, at the Council of War. I, I think. Uh, you know, again, the Russian capabilities are built on, are supposedly built on these maneuver elements and uh, combined arm, armor and motorized infantry. Uh, so that would make you think that a coastal offensive would be better because there's at least one side of your battle space that you can't get flanked on or you're unlikely to be flanked on. Um, it, it's interesting to me that up, uh, you know, the, at least the Severodonetsk access, access I I think we're looking at positions that could possibly remain stable for a long time because everywhere the Ukrainians are right now, the Russians are going to have to pay for it in blood by the, by the foot. Uh, so I, I, I'm thinking that a, that a coastal of counteroffensive might, might be in the cards, but I'd like to hear what CJ thinks about that. Yeah. I'm sorry. The, the, the caveat was assuming uh, like, you know, the assumptions to make there's a culmination Russians have, very little uh, to do uh, with any uh, maneuver warfare on the ground. They're they're going to be static. They're going to have dwindling uh, and uh, diminished uh, artillery capabilities due to the high Mars and, and the hitting of their ammo dumps. Um, and it's kind of in the Russians' mind, it would be, you know, we're going to hold this line and, and force them to negotiate. You know, that we need to keep everything. Um, that's kind of the, the and then and then on the Ukrainian side, the assumption is they've they've received twenty to thirty high Mars. They've they've got their they've shook out they've shook out their uh, 
their um, uh, combined arms, armored and infantry, and they're ready to go. So they're looking at that line that we're looking at right now. So boom, easy, easy hit or easier to thrust south, uh, east of uh, Kherson, isolate Kherson, or is it a feint and then hit him somewhere else, come down from Kharkiv? Uh, what, you know, in a perfect world, if you had those conditions, what would you think? So if you want to kick that back and try again or go to yeah. Well, I would just add just just a slight thing. Look, I'm a small unit guy, and if I if I was able to high Mars an ammunition dump within five kilometers of me, then I would strike along that axis, knowing axis knowing that I've blown up those guys' ammunition for the week. So yeah. even a even a company sized forward movement, I think you'd gain a little ground. And besides, if you didn't gain it, you just go make contact with the enemy and mess him up and. Guys with empty magazines are not going to stand their ground, and they're surely not going to advance. CJ, what do you what do you think? Yeah, CJ. Yeah, I think you kind of pointed out the the reality is <laughs> even a small units with the proper direction can do a lot of damage. And you know, we were looking and waiting for this massive Ukrainian armored thrust, but the reality is, you know, in a lot of areas, it might not look like that. It might look like months and months of HIMARS strikes. So it really comes down to where Ukraine sees it as more of like a political priority, which, you know, you're kind of asking me where they should go first. I really think Kherson and other recently occupied areas, because, you know, while there have been a lot of, you know, war crimes and atrocities committed across the occupied areas since 2014, I think there's still a lot, a lot of damage that could be done if Kherson and Zaporizhia remain in Russian hands any longer. So I kind of think that also has to drive it. Um, in addition to the fact, you know, the, the simple fact, the majority of the Russian effort is in a different place. So you have to weigh that, of course, when you're trying to figure out how to proceed. Yeah. And, you know, an- another thing comes together because uh, I, I have trouble taking my special operations hat on. Off. It's trouble keeping his mic on, too. Chuck, you there? Press uh, your mic on and off a couple of times. Maybe that'll do it. I'm just going to talk house and he's going to talk on my phone. I think this is getting crazy. All right, CJ. Uh, he needs to restart his phone. Yeah, you got to turn the whole phone off and then turn it back on. It'll clear your, your cache there. Uh, CJ, follow up for that. If not, we're going to go. Uh, we're going to hit John. Well, it's like follow up, but if we have Axel as well, you know, sort of to my point about the necessity to pro- uh, prioritize Kherson and Zaporizhia. Have you seen Axel? The you sort of mentioned it. Maybe you. This is exactly what you're talking about. The move of of uh, both from Chernobyl and also Zaporizhia to, um, I think it's Chaplinka. I believe is the name. Sort of Chaplinka. Yeah. And Chaplinka, so that's so yeah. that's interesting to me that if it's true, you know, if they're concentrating their aircraft. Uh, together in one single place for two fronts. Obviously, that poses a lot of challenges. And if you notice the range to the Ukraine front, it is a, a precisely 104 kilometers, which is just a hair's breadth uh, out of Gimli's range. But of course, as you would always point out, is in perfect attackums range. So I wonder, you know, one, would that have any effects in their defense of uh, Zeprits in Kherson? And two, you know, maybe even uh, with a little bit more time, yeah, it will be in range of Gimblers, if not a bigger weapon. 100%. Let's go to John. Has signed up for a long time. Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, I mean, it's about 20 minutes ago now, but CJ was talking about the drones um, and the art, well, the RT and the drones. Uh, and one of the things there, so Britt was talking about it on here about a week ago. But he was saying the UK have been putting a lot of EW kit in, which, I mean, Obviously, there's no way of knowing this, but that that could also be having an effect now on their their capability to operate UAVs. Um, 
but on the on the second thing, the you know, the where would you go, the what next? Yes, obviously her son is is hugely important. But I think if you got that land bridge between Donbass and well well between between Russia now and the Crimea and screen it, then you're psychologically you're creating a big problem for for them, but also logistically, because they've then got to if you if you can effectively isolate Crimea, um, drop the bridge, and then they've got to figure out how to supply it, and that's you know that's an opportunity to attrit then their air assets if they're going to try and start flying stuff in, and they're going to have to try and start moving stuff in by sea, which opens up more opportunities again. So, I think for certainly this side of the if they're going to go this side of the reins. Um, I think that that could be a manageable, doable, and efficiently. That's something I think they could pull off. Yeah, no, and and you got to remember something as well that Kharkiv and, and I mean, cutting off the Donbass from Crimea is also problematic in that there always will have to be um, a guard, uh, you know, a certain amount of troops dedicated to um, facing Crimea as the land bridge is cut and then and Ukrainian forces ostensibly push north. Uh, so that's why Kherson looks uh, to be a pretty uh, natural selection and it might even uh, force the Russians or cause the Russians to attempt to reinforce it or they might just cut it and say we're not going to defend that position because it's not defensible. Um, hope that helps. John? Chuck, did you want to chime in? Uh, I, I'm afraid I got back on late. Who? I, I am the determined individual here. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm dropping in and out. I'm doing my best. No worries, sir. No worries about that. Eh? Uh, did you turn your phone off? You might have to turn your phone off completely and then turn it back on and log in at some point. It's a little glitch with Twitter. Yeah, I just, I, I got off and on Twitter. If it's, okay. uh, I'll go cold on it. again, trying to, yeah. So uh, let's go to Dryfly and then, uh, and then over to see. Hi, Chuck. Uh, a lot of this, a lot of this started um, with uh, Yehuda and I talking about the discussion you and I had probably two, three weeks ago about special forces and or um, insurgents coordinating with a frontal attack. We were talking about Kherson specifically and how in the city it could become a way-like situation for them and just for the Russians and just awful. I mean, it could be really, really, and really allow for Ukraine to, to do a lot of damage in a shockingly short period of time just because the Russians won't know what's hitting them. After that discussion, I started thinking a little bit and started wondering, are there better places along that front to do something similar where you could even get more depth? And I just don't know both the tactics as well as you do, and I don't know the 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 map as well as these other guys. So I guess I'm asking you, look at the layout. layout. Are there places that just scream to you that a coordinated frontal attack with insurgents behind the line to rip it up at, at key communications points um, really tells you that you there could be a you know a real good opportunity place somewhere along the line that we aren't seeing and that would be my question and I will listen yeah that is great and you know what to give you a better answer I'm gonna have to do a little bit more uh, map map study but uh, you know again uh, you know in an asymmetrical conflict, you, you want to strike at the enemy's lines of communication and supply, which are traditionally weaker, weaker points. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love your idea of this sort of 
you know, Kirsten could go from a place where uh, these guys, you know, buy fresh fruits in the market every afternoon to just becoming an absolute nightmare. Uh, if you if you were to time uh, your assault with a partisan uprising, I mean, you could turn this place into Beirut in the course of an afternoon. So, but that is something I'd also save my, I keep my powder dry because you don't want to do too early or too late. Well, that's the other thing. That's the other thing I told you, who it is the fact that we don't see it now doesn't mean it's not there because if you were smart, you don't even show them that you have that capability. And now I'll listen. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of homework you want to do too. I mean, I'd want to have weapons and ammunition available to these people. I'd, I'd want to be able to, you know, so this guy can whistle up his platoon at, at the right time, at the right place. All that takes planning. It all takes planning. The, 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 the thing to avoid there, I think, roughly sort of frontal assault and hair on people uh, doing partisan activities, it's not going to, in my estimation, that would not be a good course of action. Um, in this case, Kherson is easily bypassable. You can bypass it, uh, and that's when you cut off the Russians in Kherson, and that's when partisans sabotage electrical plants and shut it down at a certain time. If they got a message out, they don't even have to fight the Russians there. They can just hinder, um, disrupt uh, activities in the city itself and wait for the uh, Ukrainians to, to basically isolate and starve out Russians, right? Because if they take, if they take it, there's nothing for them to do. If they cut off the Russians there, there's nothing for them. There's nowhere for the Russians to go. Uh, so in that case, it wouldn't be an example of a frontal. Um, it would be a, it would be a bypass. So I hope that helps them. Chuck, if you want to jump in there. Too. Yeah, absolutely. A, a lot of the a lot of the times we're seeing the lines of communication that supply in these, you know, in the areas out, out other than urban areas in Ukraine, we're often dealing with, with very narrow two lane roads that are you know, uh, circumscribed by ditches and trees, you hit a convoy there and, and you've blocked the roads and you don't have to stay around and defend that. You just burn their trucks and hootie hoo off into the night. And, you know, you leave the trucks there because they've got to tow them away. You, you know, yeah. And also I mean, there's, there's use of flooding. The engineers can engage in as well in different areas. We're not there yet though. Absolutely. You know, the other thing is like, I mean, a lot of times we'll stage demolition ambushes, and uh, we're not trying to destroy the vehicles. We're trying to burn them. You know, we don't want to clear the road. We want all the junk laying there. So yeah. uh, I mean, putting the enemy weakest, I mean, weakest, right? So asymmetrical warfare, there's no point in, in attacking, uh, you know, the pickets of a, of a frontline, uh, you know, brigade task group. I'm, I'm looking for the chow hall, right? I'm looking for, you know, I'm looking for these supply dumps. And again, we're talking about, you know, switchblade or an improvised, uh, you Kev, uh, you know, if you drop a couple of those, you know, anti-armor grenades in the right place, we we've seen those Fourth of July explosions. And that's bang for the buck. And you got to remember, even on the other side of Kharkiv, on the Russian side, it's it's there's a lot more there are a lot more factors that people have to consider, and that is that uh, that there are Russian BTGs of whatever strength in different areas. So Ukrainians can't just go anywhere; uh, they have to they have to consider where where Russians could conduct their own counter moves. So, for example, if it was something like in Kherson, you'd have to have a very sizable, like, decent guard um, in front of Kherson, and then if you were to bypass it and push south to the sea, um, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to make sure that the Russians wouldn't break out as well, right? So there are a lot of factors. It's not as, it's not just, uh, you know, 
rock, sock, what is it? Sock them, sock them, hop them, sock them. It's not, uh, yeah. there's a lot more to it, right? Yeah. The, the other thing I need to do is, uh, you know, I've, I've been concentrating along the sort of Isium Slovian. Yes. Yeah. I, I think, I'm, I, I think I'm back maybe. Yeah. You're back. You said you're concentrating on the Isium yeah. Slovians. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, one of the things any, any military guy's got to do is you've got to know the end. You've got to know the map, like you live there. So I need to, I need to shift down, uh, looking at the, you know, the, the riverine aspects there around Kherson, you know, uh, I should be able to give some, when I'm better informed on the map, uh, I, you know, I can give some good opinions because you want to use the waterways to your, uh, you know, your benefit and armored vehicles, they hate water. Right. So, uh, you know, there's great opportunities for partisans in a regular warfare kind of a situation like that. Sounds good. Uh, language, you had your hand up. I don't know if we lost CJ. If you're there, come back. If not, go ahead, language. Yeah, there's a question uh, for Chuck. So, you know, moving a little bit further south of Harrison, the de- former deputy chief of staff for the Ukraine military was talking about uh, possible strikes into, um, into Sevastopol, actually, and that being your area of expertise. He was specifically delineating the use of uh, unmanned submersible vehicles. He said that just because of Russian anti-air systems and the topography, there's really no way to launch a missile in there. Would you see that as being something useful? We know that there have been some unmanned surface vehicles uh, sent to Ukraine as of a month and a half ago, and they really haven't been talked about. With Would one of those, with like a small torpedo, whatever they can carry, would that be enough to do anything besides a psychological victory well even uh, even trying it would be a psychological victory uh but again there's a there's a lot of moving parts to a swimmer born assault and pool it's a pretty hard target um i you know when when you guys when you guys get a hold of overhead imagery and you want to snoop around in sevastopol what you're looking for are some floating white rectangles they'll usually be in a prominent place in the harbor or close to the channel mouth, and and what those are 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 pens for marine mammals, usually dolphins, and they're used in an anti-swimmer role. And they're just about, uh, you know, that that's like the Iron Dome for combat swimmers because no human is ever going to beat a dolphin in any situation. Not even Chuck. Not even me, but I'm smart enough not to do it. Thirty-year-old Chuck would have gone in there with a salad fork and said, "Bring it on, flipper." <laughs> but uh, but, uh, but the, here, here's the good thing. There, that already is a psychological victory. If the Russians uh, care enough to put marine mammals down there, uh, you know, they know what they're protecting. So that being said, you might not be talking combat swimmer operation. You may be talking about a naval special warfare operation. Uh, you know, for example, if you could get in uh, anywhere overlooking that harbor and squirt a couple of RPGs, simple off-the-shelf dumb RPGs at a at a submarine pier side, you're you're going to send a message, and that might be something that's doable. Um, again, though, I'll, you know, I, I'll start looking at uh, that target a little like I like I would if I was actually going to address it. And and here's the thing, look. They got guys on 24-hour watches, right? And they are sweating the load. They do not want 
anything to burn, sink, or get messed up in that harbor. But uh, it's a working harbor, and the enemy has to come and go. So what could be done? Well, it might be possible to use combat swimmers to emplace uh, uh, some kind of mine in the channel there. Uh, magnetic influence mines or acoustic mines. There, there's all kinds of mines. I, I'm not talking about the unsophisticated contact mine, although they would send a message because if a couple of mines surface in that harbor or damage of a ship coming or going, then they're going to have to redouble their efforts. And that is everybody they put there on counter naval special warfare duty is not at the front. So that's a little victory too. Amazing. Yeah, even an RPG, eh? Get close a- enough. Absolutely. Like that. That absolutely. submarine's out of commission for quite a bit. Quite a long time, right? It's not something you're going to weld over. So, you, you um, know, I'm sorry. No, no, I was going to go to John after when Chuck's done. Go, John. Go ahead, Chuck. Uh, I was just going to say, you've got, you know, the the, the Bactars, Baractars are o- operating off the coast now. And uh, look, it, it isn't impossible that one or that that one of them has got, you know, some sort of improvised depth charge as well. So I'm flying there with my Bactar and I see caliber cruise missiles flying out of the water. It would be worth my while to fly over there and just drop some stuff. You know, it might be a one in a million shot, but believe me, that submarine crew is going to hear them going off. They are going to hear those things and it's going to rock their world. There are all these little things that, you know, it might look like it's not a success, but it inflects the enemy, right? And right. the question I was a little more focused on, I apologize, um, was sort of with the, we've seen drones have changed the air game. We've seen drones have changed a number of things. With the advent of these unmanned, uh, both surface vehicles and musings about unmanned submersible vehicles, would those have enough of an effect or are they still too much of, you know, just out of DARPA's labs technology to 